Hello and welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites regular podcast. I am your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are George Foster. Hello, and I'm so glad to hear it called something other than seemingly weekly. Adam Vitale. Well, now you just committed us. Now we have to be regular. <laughs> I didn't commit. I just, I just ignored it. I didn't say otherwise. And James Galizio. Finally finished uh, Final Fantasy XIV. Does that game really have an end? Can you really ever truly no. be finished? No. Don't forget you're here. But anyway, forever. yes, you're, that's that's the reason I haven't started because I don't want to get sucked in. But yep, we are halfway through May, so we have all been playing a ton of RPGs because there have been a lot of games releasing to talk about, and we've just been slowly ramping into this weird summer of post e3 we've have the uh short announcements for games that we knew were on the way such as ghost of tsushima and then we've had like surprise drops out of nowhere like a new paper mario game to talk about so it's been an exciting summer so far and we've still got two weeks left in may but before we talk about all the stuff that's coming up let's as always talk about what we've been playing so far up to today so Again, as always, I'm going to have a hard time deciding who gets to talk first, so I will just pick out of a hat. Uh, Adam, you've been playing a, a game for yes, kind of, uh, in a preview sense. So you just mentioned like rather than talking about games coming up, well, I've been playing a game that's not out yet <laughs> coming up. <laughs> so, Ignore it. Move on. Move on. <laughs> now go ahead. I could talk about it a little bit. So uh, I have an early copy of Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, but just briefly here uh basically so i've already played xenoblade um and so i'm very familiar with the game already and this is a replay so to speak and i don't have a whole lot to say about it right now other than because it's basically the same game like the main game part of it just been souped up visually is the biggest enhancement for it obviously and that's really what the game needed so it's kind of a it's perfect that they did that really because the game didn't need very many other content additions or anything else, um, but they did add a few other tweaks to various mechanics that are very very welcome. So Xenoblade Chronicles has a ton of quests, and you know quests are a little bit of a point of contention in terms of like does it have too many? Were they well implemented? Are they just fetch quests or whatnot? But what the, a couple of things they've done to make it a little bit easier is that now the game's user interface will actually highlight for you like after you've accepted a bunch of quests. When you go out to the to the field maps, there'll now be exclamation marks basically over every enemy and every collectible that you need to pick up for a quest. Basically saying like, "Hey, go this way and oh, pick up these things and fight these enemies." So especially after you visited a big city. Uh, I think I can talk about this. So you visit Alchemoth, for instance, which is the Hyentia city, and you pick up, you know, a million quests there. And once you go back out to the Earth Sea, you look at your map, and you're going to see basically exclamation marks all over the place. And basically, what you can do is you can just kind of just follow them, and like, oh, I guess I got to kill these enemies, and kill a few, get some drops. Oh, I got to kill these enemies too, and just kill a few of those. And it'll even tell you which of those little blue collectibles you need to pick up. So rather than just kind of running over them, hoping you pick up the ones you need, it'll actually tell you, like, hey, this one's got an exclamation mark above it. I mean, this is what you need. Uh, so it makes completing those quests quite a bit easier. You don't have to, like, go into your 
quest log and be like, oh, I guess I got to kill three of these frog enemies or whatever. You can just kind of see it on your map. Oh, over here are some enemies I have to kill. And just run over there and do that. And so do they appear on your map and just on the normal on the normal HUD, like third person view? Yeah. Like it, okay. I'm just wondering, do you think it's too forward? Like to me, if I went up to a map and I look out over the Guar plane or whatever and I see a ton of exclamation points everywhere, do you think that's a bit gaudy or do you think it looks okay? I'm just trying to envision that in my head. Well, so Xenoblade is the type of game where you don't really have to kill every enemy you come across to be like well balanced in your levels and whatnot. So, like when I played the game on Wii, you wouldn't you would just run by a lot of enemies because you didn't need to kill them and you didn't necessarily need their drops. And now it just sort of it kind of helps to sort of a almost like a guidepost. Like, hey, you're gonna run a, run past some of these enemies over here on your left that have some quest items that you need. So you just kind of think to yourself, oh, I guess I'll just stop. Take a, I'll take a, a detour here and knock out these 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 monsters and complete some quests while I'm at it. And it, it just makes it way more convenient than having to like, I don't know, go into your quest log and open up Notepad on your computer and write down, okay, I got I guess I got to kill these enemies and then I got to look up where they are because the game will just point them out to you. I think if the game had not as many quests, it maybe would have been too signposted. But I think the fact that the volume of quests is so high that it really just helps it make makes it more manageable because there are just so many. I, I really do appreciate those those little markers just telling you at a glance, hey, if you want to complete some of these quests, just go this way and do these things. So um, yeah, the way you described it going in, I was thinking like I would almost see that like a chore to go out to a map and see so many little notes saying do the go here and kill these things and then pick up these things. Lucky you. But then the way, but then the way you described uh, going into the menu to like write down like that even seems worse. So between the two options, what you have is actually way better. So I guess that just kind of comes with the territory with the sheer volume of quests that you have. So Xenoblade is the type of game that if you're the type of person who wants to do every single quest in the game, it's it is admittedly pretty tedious because there are a lot, and there this is actually something that's criticized somewhat regularly. It's just that uh, there are probably too many, and doing them all, you you pretty much are, do have to put like the uh, the the pacing of the game. It kind of gets out of whack because you'll you'll go to a new city and then you'll spend the next six hours doing quests or whatever. But I guess what this change allows you to do is if you're the type of person who does want to do all the quests and don't mind putting the story stuff on back burner for a few hours at a time it of course makes it easier but even if you're the type of person who doesn't it makes completing quests as you play the game more regularly just kind of easier to do in passing because you'll just you'll you'll just see right away as you're running through you know an area getting trying to get to the next story part or maybe you're just exploring a bit like oh i guess I should fight these enemies and I can just maybe knock out a few quests on the way. It makes it easier to, com- to to complete a handful of quests as you're just proceeding through the game normally. So I think whether either type of player you are, it's a benefit, even if there are exclamation marks all over the place. Another addition that I think is really nice, and if you haven't played Xenoblade recently, you probably wouldn't even recognize it, but the original game had... Uh, inventory limits for your various item categories. And some item categories, like helmets, for instance, you probably wouldn't 
fill up your space too fast because you don't get that many helmets. But things like weapons and gems and crystals, you did fill up your inventory fairly regularly. And I remember playing through the original game, you, you would have to be like, oh, I guess my inventory is full. I guess I got to do some management and go through your menu and sell a bunch of junk and try to, try to know what to keep and what to get rid of and whatnot. But now they've upped those limits. Some of the items, like your weapons, has actually been tripled. You can now carry three times the amount of weapons. Um, some the uh, gems and the crystals, I believe they've gone from 300 to 500. So it's a, it's a, not a huge boost, but it's a pretty significant boost on how many you can carry. And it's just a nice little small addition that's, you know, they didn't have to put in there, but they did. And that just makes, you know, all the looting that you do in the game just a little bit more manageable. So yeah, besides it's one of those things that you probably wouldn't appreciate unless you're coming from having played the original game. Uh, I, always, I just wanted to ask in general, so obviously this is a remake, remaster, hybrid, whatever you want to call it, for a 10-year-old Wii game. Does any of that show through in the definitive edition? Like when you, If you played Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and then you played this, is there anything that feels like that this is the predecessor game? Or does it actually kind of feel on par? Well, there are some, so there are, there are the cutscenes where like the character models are, are, are basically fully modeled that they can move in whatever way that the game, that the directors wanted them to move in. And those look, you know, totally fine. Um, there are some cutscenes where there are more like the gameplay models kind of talking and that that's where it looks more like, you know, a PS2 era game where if a character kind of rotates on the spot, they kind of just rotate on the spot oh uh, yeah like turn turn 40 right. degrees left <laughs> yeah so there are moments like that where it's like oh yeah this is a 10 year old game and uh they didn't have they they didn't have you know the greatest animations for when the characters were basically using their gameplay models you know in not a fully motion cutscene, but just sort of a, a dialogue scene and there are some pl places like that where it comes across um this isn't really fully unexpected either, but so then the models are, of course, greatly updated. In terms of the voice acting, um, the voice acting is great on its own. Both the English um, and the Japanese, I assume, is great, but the English is great. And the um, the models, of course, were updated. Before, the models weren't weren't detailed enough that you didn't really care a whole lot about like lip sync because it was relatively simplified and wasn't very detailed faces anyway. Here, the faces are more detailed and it's clear that the models are more synced to Japanese voices than English voices. So sometimes with when you're using the English voiceover for the game, there are points where it's like, oh, okay, the lip sync isn't very good here. I don't, that really doesn't bother me at all because that was kind of common in games of this era. But uh, especially if you compare that to like Final Fantasy VII Remake or, you know, something with a super high something recent with a high budget that did do lip sync, you know, it's, it's not going to be like that. So that was the other thing that maybe is a little bit more distracting with better quality models is the lip sync is a little bit, uh, at discord with the, Stiff. with the animations. Right. So, I mean, that really doesn't bother me, but I should, I just figured, you know, to mention it, it makes sense. What but otherwise play, like combat, uh, oh, the UI is hugely improved um, overall in terms of like uh, your character menus, your uh, battle menus, and basically how you access your quests and everything. It's 
the original game, if you if you if you if you don't remember, you you pressed a button, and then there'd be like a little like it almost looked like a Windows taskbar at the bottom that would pop up, and there were just icons. And in order to in order to see what like what each icon meant, you kind of had to like highlight over it, and then a little bubble would appear. It's like this icon is your inventory, and this icon is your quest. But now, when you press the menu, it actually does pull up a menu, and it's text, big letters, big easy to read letters. Um, about like this is your item menu, your equipment equipment menu, your party menu, and it, it's just a lot easier to deal with. So that they completely improved for the better here. So, but in terms of the game itself, um, there are maybe some environments that you can tell like okay, this environment was not originally modeled in HD. Um, so it's it they've been they've been souped up a little bit, but not as much as like the character models, which I think is you know expected and fair so but you just you just kind of have to remember when you're playing the game like this is a wii game remastered character models were basically completely redone but not all the environments were so how long is xenoblade the first one uh depends on how many quests you do um to 100 percent let's say if you do if, if you're doing everything and by everything i mean like all the quests fighting all the unique monsters. Unique monsters are, are like the tyrants in the other games or whatever they call them. The, the basically the named uh, wildlife <laughs> fauna that you would fight. Some of them, you know, are you're basically your game super bosses. And if you kind of do all the quests and fight all the super bosses and do everything you can, it's, it's more than a hundred hours. Um, but <laughs> if you just do the storyline and just do, you know, a normal amount of quests, I think you're looking at maybe, um, 50 to it's 60 to 70. Long. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, pretty long. Still quite you can beat it in like 30 to 40 if you really know how, what you're doing and you kind of just streamline the game. But there's just a lot of, just the type of game it is, there's a lot of optional content. There's a lot of quests. Even Not even just talking about quests, but even if you just do a lot of exploring and kind of thoroughly uh, pace yourself through the areas rather than just sort of, you know, critical pathing it. You can you if you critical path an area, you can probably get through an area in forty minutes. But if you kind of just wander and explore a bit, you can take three hours. So it, it kind of depends on how much you do. Um, so in Xenoblade yeah, Two, it's, it's when you game. fought a when you fought a unique monster, they would leave behind like this statue that would allow you to refight them. If I remember right, Xenoblade One was kind of like every unique monster was a one and done. Is that still the case, or have they changed how that works? Mm -hmm. You're mistaken. Um, once you oh. fight a unique monster, they can they can respawn, and you can fight them again. Um, I don't think there's actually, and I think this is actually true for Xenoblade Two as well. Uh, let me step back a bit. There is incentive to fight every unique monster in the game because they give you an affinity coin when you do, and that's used in basically powering up your characters with their links. So there is incentive to fight every unique monster in the game, but I don't think there's an in-game like either like a bestiary or a checklist that basically tells you which ones you've beaten or not. So you kind of have to keep track of that on your own. I'm pretty sure it maybe it's hidden in one of the menus somewhere, but I don't think so. Um, I mean, that's just a, a footnote really, but um, there's no gravestones or anything like that. They just pop back up where they were. <laughs> Cause I remember when I first played Xenoblade two, I really appreciated that little kind of quality of life. Like, Hey, do you want to fight this guy again? You have a say in that or whatever. So that's kind of what I remember from the original game. You don't really have a say, I guess you just shows back up and then you fight it again if you want. Yeah. But otherwise, you know, the game is pretty much the same. It's a great game. You know, there are some things with it. I'm not 
like incredibly a fan of but other but overall it's a pretty great game and it's a it's the visual update is what it needed really like that's that's really the one thing that held it back tremendously coming back coming out in the hd era with ps2 era models and i know some there's been some vocal criticism that the models are maybe too too anime now or whatever but the character models is something that Monolith had kind of struggled with for a long time. Um, like the earlier Xenosaga games don't look, don't have, they have like these creepy dollish models and the original Xenoblade, and, you know, wasn't great. Uh, and Xenoblade. And I was just going to say that, yeah, like these the Xenoblade, sorry, the Xenosaga trilogy, there's not even a sense of cohesion from game to game to game. And then they had the same problem with Xenoblade where one cross and two all looked different. Which is maybe you know individually fine, but when then you try to package these as you know connected stories, it's just a bit of a discord. So I think even though you might look at the models in a vacuum and say, I think that I don't you know, I think this is too quote anime or whatever. I I think well the fact that now we have a pair of games, original and sequel, that have the same visual identity, I think trumps that. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was going to get at. And, you know, it's not only cohesive, but it's just, you know, if this is the type of styling that they can do and make it work compared to what they have, I'll take it. And it, it the game does look great, you know. Oh, and I think it looks way better than it originally did. And I was someone okay. who wasn't super down on how it originally looked. I guess I was I was okay with it, despite the muddy textures and poor models. I thought that, like, the art style kind of trumped it back then, like... You could yeah. tell that the art, like the, the the stylings of it were great, even if the actual like technical aspects of it were not. It's actually kind of weird. Like when I'm playing through the game, it feels right in a way that like this is sort of how it should look. Um, and it's it's kind of weird. Like when I'm playing through these, when I see like cutscenes or whatever that I've seen before, I know I've seen them before and it looks, it seems very familiar, but then I actually kind of have to remind myself like, oh yeah, this is my first time seeing this with these new models. Cause it, it, I guess what I'm getting at here is it doesn't seem like it's so different that it's distracting. It's clearly better, but it, it, it's not like um, sometimes you get remasters where they touch up models and it's like, why does he look so weird now or whatever? And that's not really the case. Final Fantasy 10. Yeah, yeah. His face look broken. <laughs> Yeah, like they changed how Yuno looked and they changed how uh, Titus Titus looked a little bit. And it's just kind of, you kind of have to get used to it. Um, here, yeah, the characters do look different than how they originally did, but I guess I've gotten... It all looks right. You know, it, it, yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, changed for the worse. Um, it, it feels like I'm replaying, uh, re- replaying a game that I like. And yeah. I kind of have to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, this, is, this looks way better than it used to. Um, it, it just feels right, is what I'm getting at. I love Shulk's new outfit as well. That, it really, really. He has that new outfit in the epilogue, which I have not played yet. I'm actually doing a... I'm actually, I actually am doing a pretty thorough run-through of the main game, so I am trying to get the quest done and fight all the monsters and do all the things. So it's like, all right, I'll probably be at this for about 100 hours before I even start the new content. <laughs> well, um, speaking of fine. outfits, uh, there's obviously that well-touted, highly desired feature about having that wardrobe system, whatever you call it, where they're able to look like whatever gear you want. So uh, yeah. what what outfit have you been keeping on your characters? I've been pretty boring, and I just put them in their standard outfits and just kept them in it. Uh, um, 
but yeah, the original game, it was one of those games where you, you, your your armor reflected on your characters, but you hadn't, basically, you kind of had to make a decision like, wow, this armor has really good stats, but it looks terrible, and I'm just going to wear it anyway, and then it just sticks out in every cutscene there is. Um, so now you don't have to do that. You can just decide what armor you want to wear. And how the game works in this case is like when you pick up like uh, um, like the Magna Forest armor or whatever, um, when you're in the Magna Forest and you get some drops from, from enemies there, and it's I think it's called like jungle gear. And then uh, in the original game, you know, you'd put that gear on. It's like, oh, so this is jungle feature or jungle themed or whatever. But now you you basically unlock like in your fashion menu. Like now you can put on this jungle top for your characters uh and you can just put it on whenever now if, if you want it if you want to so it feels like you unlock the fashion when you pick up an item with that fashion there is also well i'm just gonna i think every game should use a system like that i feel yeah. like as a blanket system i don't think that would have too many drawbacks if every game just worked pretty much like that I mean, I've already gone through the game with characters wearing just mahaj pages of arm, random armor sets. You know, kind of, you just kind of have to ignore it as you like. I, I just care about stats. I'm just going to put on the best armor stats. So for this playthrough, it's like, I'm just going to have them wear their normal outfits and I'll watch all the cutscenes and everything with characters basically in their designed outfits. Um, there is another thing. I'm just going to talk about it. This is technically embargoed, but the Japanese side of things showed it off anyway. So I, I'm just going to talk about it. There's a time attack mode. Uh, in the game, it, this is new, and it's basically like the challenges that Xenoblade 2 had in some of that downloadable stuff that they did for the season pass. And it pretty much works the same way. There's these challenges that you fight, and it scales your your levels down in some cases and puts on some restrictions. And if you beat it, you get these gems that you can trade in for outfits. So it's basically just like Xenoblade 2. And I believe one of the outfits they showed off was like Ricky and like a, looks like a pineapple, uh, you know, silly stuff like that. Uh, I have not messed with that at all. I just I sort of told myself I'm just gonna keep I'm just gonna hold that off until the end, and then once once I've done everything else, I'll check it out. So yeah, that's there. I remember when I originally thought in Xenoblade Two that I had a a really good grasp on the combat system. Like I had done all the original challenges and managed to like get through them, doing like those ten billion eight orb combos or whatever they are but then they introduced like all those difficulty toggles and like super hard mode and then i if i just ad- admitted defeat so i wonder if people will be able to do like crazy challenges like that oh, uh, with the xenoblade one time attacks i i, I ended up do, did doing all did the, all the hard mode stuff for xenoblade 2 um but i know some people did you know like when they when they added those scalers like the literally the hardest possible mode you can do I forget I forget what all the scales were, but like lowest HP, lowest, you know, basically scaling it all all against your favor and still coming out on top. It's like I didn't do that, but I did the standard hard yeah, that's, stuff. That's what I meant. Yeah. When right. did Xenoblade release? I have uh, May twenty nine, so I think about two weeks from now. Two weeks wow. from yesterday. Two weeks from so, yeah. So yeah, that's it's soon. yeah. Um, and considering June seems kind of when does what comes out in June. Uh, Last of Us Part Two. Oh yeah, I was wondering if that was. <laughs> I was about to say nothing's coming out in June. Uh, <laughs> there's another there's... one as well in June, but uh... I know there's some smaller stuff like. Um... <laughs> sure, on a blank. <laughs> there's no straight roads, which is an indie game. It comes out in June. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we do have. Uh, let's see that Brigadine Legend of Runeseria. 
Runeresia, oh, that's what I was. which is the uh, the tactics game uh, coming out to Switch, and then Trails of Cold Steel for Switch at the end of June. Three. Yeah. And a few other things like Fairy Tale. If you're into Fairy Tale, it's out. Okay. Um, so yeah, Xenoblade, it's really great that people who haven't played it will get a chance to play it, and it's pretty much an upgrade in every respect, And it's, but it, it is still the same game. So I don't think anyone will be upset that, you know, they, they didn't change anything, you know, dramatically to make it, you know, it's just it's just better all around. So yeah. <laughs> Which is I think how remasters should be handled when you start George Lucasing it and saying, like, well, we're gonna start introducing like we're gonna throw in some kind of unasked for like teases or whatever. Like I don't know. There 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 was a possibility that they could have gone too far. Well, well, like even if even if Future Connected is, I have not played it, so I have no idea. Um, But even if that's just kind of a disappointing, like, well, this kind of felt unneeded. It it being kind of separate from the main story, I feel like I haven't played it. But even if it disappoint me, it's like, well, it's you know, it's just an additional little add-on that is you know is pretty much the same as like like the World Ends with You did something like that when it re-released, and uh, the World of Final Fantasy, a couple of those Final Fantasy games. Of what World of Final Fantasy did, but yeah, it's just they added that extra thing. Um, I don't think I know. I know how long it is, roughly, but I don't think I'm supposed to say, <laughs> so I won't. But thank you for talking about your time with Xenoblade Chronicles: Definitive Edition because we didn't do a written preview. So hearing you talk about your experience with it so far has been really like I'm looking forward to it, and I, I'm the, I'm the sort of person which I'm in the same boat that I assume so many people are, where I played it. 10 years ago, but I don't remember a ton about it other than like the broad strokes. So I'm interested to go back to it and see if my opinions really changed or has remained the same. So completely out of the RPG space entirely, George, the last couple weeks, you have listed here that you've been playing Doom Eternal, which you brought up, I think, like about a month ago on the podcast, but you hadn't gotten very far. So uh, where are you at now on that? Have you have you completed it, or what are your thoughts now that you put more time into it? Uh, yeah, so so completely finished with it now, which in my eyes isn't like, oh, I've done the hardest difficulty. It's just as soon as I've seen the credits of a game, then that is usually enough for me. Um, and Doom Eternal, I kind of have like quite mixed feelings about. So even though it's technically a better game than 2016's Doom, I think I ended up enjoying it less. And I don't know whether that's like an age thing, but when I was playing it, I had to like genuinely why it's taken me so long to complete is it's just so intense. Like it, it just when you're playing, it feels like you're constantly fighting against enemies that are like really close to taking you out. It's only in the last two hours I felt like I was like skilled enough to go up against everything. And I, it's just I just I had to keep taking uh, little breaks here and there between playing. It was that intense. I know, um, James, you've played Doom Eternal as well, haven't you? So you, I don't know whether that's just me being like a wuss. Um, you play it on console. It definitely feels like Doom Eternal was more designed around PC players in mind. Like, uh, I do know that um, it was a common consensus at launch that the game is definitely harder than 2016. So it's not just you. Thank God, because it really felt it, and I was I was just like, well, when Doom 2016 came out, I was 17. Was I just much better at games back then? And that's kind of a sad thing to be thinking. When I'm, I'm just letting you know that it, it only gets worse. <laughs> oh, great. 
Yeah. Um, it's it's technically better though. I, I think if if you have played 2016, then you definitely should check out Doom Eternal because it is more Doom. But then there are some things that are like definite upgrades, like having the meat hook on the super shotgun, and then there are things that are definitely downgrades, like having swimming sections and like toxic sludge that slows you down. And every time I'd see that something happen, I was like, oh man, like why can't it just be? I haven't played. <laughs> I haven't played Doom Eternal, but I have heard that so so Doom 2016, which I have played, has this kind of threadbare story just enough to make you hate that Sam Hayden and the other scientists, like just just enough just to motivate you to to go wreck shit. But then I feel like a lot of people's impression who I trust for Doom Eternal says that they started really emphasizing in the, the story in ways that felt unneeded. Yeah, so I don't know I if you have the same agree. sort of impression. Um, so that that's one of the, that sort of thing where you're playing as the Doom guy and it's just like clear he doesn't give a crap about anything. That's still there sometimes. So one of my favorite bits is when he's walking through this like station and they showed it off when they first showed gameplay off. I think so you might have seen it. He's walking through a station and then there's just a bunch of humans like looking at him like, oh my god, he's here, and they're all scared, like really scared of him. And he just grabs grabs one of their key cards and uses it to scan something, and that felt like sort of how I wanted it to be. But then most of the game is trying to tell this like grand story, but it doesn't feel like it feels like it's missed a game to tell you all this. So even from the start, you start off in like this in the Doom Slayer's base, and he he never had that in the first one. So I was there like, have I missed a cutscene explaining literally any of this? And you you feel like that like all the time in the game. I don't think you should have to look at in-game logs and walls of text to figure out a story. Um, ha- so have you played the original Dooms? Just wondering, since you're the generation like, after all that. Old old Doom. Yes, old old Doom. Well, um, yes, but only for like bonus level stuff. So you can play Doom Two on on the computer in in the hideout. So I did give that a go, and it was actually pretty fun. Uh, to to reduce something like Doom Two, which is kind of iconic, to just pretty fun in my words might might really piss some people off. But I, I don't really, you know, it's quite an old game. So I haven't. I wouldn't really say i've played any of the old just games. just to elucidate you i i feel like over the years the common most accepted consensus of the original games is that the original doom is you know an iconic you know testament to what games could be and it, you know the reason why the franchise is now is still around is because that first game the second game is still good but i know a lot of people it, it basically added like gigantic levels and I think a lot of people take issue with that or rather than having like these well-designed, you know, maps that you would play in, they're just basically like these giant city areas and it, it, it is a little bit weird. So it's, it's funny that you say that because that really carries over into Doom Eternal. All of the levels are massive. So they're, most of them are about an hour long, which doesn't sound long, but it always feels long. So that was another reason why it took me so long to finish. So I'd start a mission I'd get in about 30 to 40 minutes of like genuinely really intense demon killing, barely surviving, skin my teeth sort of thing. And then I'd be like, oh, there's still like another 30, 40 minutes of this mission left. Like, I, I, I better just quit out for a bit. So, yeah, I didn't I, want to go into like the super cliche, like, oh, they're making the same mistake that 
the original Doom 1 to Doom 2 did, because that's just a bit hackneyed and the world isn't that clear and perfect. <laughs> but, but like, there are some, like, the thing about how Doom 1 worked, and I think Doom 2016 was similar, is that some of the levels were large, yes, but they were kind of, like, smartly designed to, like, thread the player through it, where you had some say in where you went and the order you went them, but you would, like, pass by a locked door before you would get the key to it, which would then tell you, okay, once I get the key, come back here. Like just simple kind of basic level design kind of philosophy where and then in Doom 2, you just have like, I remember this level where it's just like a giant square filled with skyscrapers and then you'd get a key or whatever, or you'd press a lever and you're like, all right, now I have no idea what that did. I'm just gonna run around aimlessly to figure out what I do next. And I'm wondering, I really should just play Doom Eternal. Let's see like, do yeah, the same sort of yeah. Do the same sort of missteps happen here, where it's like it's no longer as pure as it was, or it's like it just feels like they went too far without properly like scaling how they led the player through the levels. I think my. I guess I I just need to play it. You should definitely should because my my summary of how I feel about it is that when I completed Dune twenty sixteen, I came out of it thinking. God, that was one of that was one of the best first person shooters I've played in my life. I can't wait for a sequel. Then they announced a sequel, and I was like, oh my god, day one. I'm so excited for this. This is on my radar constantly. And if they announced a third Doom game now, I'd be like, well, I'm definitely gonna get it. I'll enjoy it, but I'm not excited for it. Because I feel like I've had my fix of Doom, at least for the next couple of years. It's kind of funny because I felt the same way about the um, the machine game Wolfenstein series. I thought yes. the first game was really tightly made, had some really interesting ideas. It had it had a like a, a unique kind of blend of serious and camp. Uh, I'm talking about like you know deliberately like kitschy, like corny in a way. And then like the yeah. second game kind of leaned too far in that way, where it felt like they just they they turned the knobs to 11 when they didn't need to be i still i still enjoyed it but when you're hearing you talk about doom eternal i kind of feel like i'm hearing myself how i think about wolfenstein uh the new colossus i would agree and with that as well a, 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 so you play both of those yes yeah i, I really enjoyed both of them as well but i remember again finishing the first one going and that was before the second one came out so i was like yeah can't wait for the second one get in to play the second one taking a lot longer to finish it because I was just like, meh, and then finishing it and I haven't thought about it since. But I still really enjoyed yeah, this. That's a good way to put game. it, yeah. So, yep, we play FPS here at RPG Site and we're going to talk about them because we're not allowed to write <laughs> about them. <laughs> so, do you have any other final thoughts on Doom Eternal? Uh, the soundtrack felt less impactful. And I know uh, mm. that's depending on how you feel about it because I'm I'm so, I've really liked the music of the original, well, 2016 Doom, and I still really like the music here, but it, it just didn't stand out as much. Yeah, that's, that's and about they all, have announced. All the I have. Yeah, I haven't kept on top of this completely. Maybe Adam has because he's good at that, but uh, it's obviously outside of our purview. But they have kind of shown some uh, screenshots of the upcoming DLC for Doom Eternal. But there has been like happenings that the original composer for the games, Mick Gordon, won't be involved with the DLC. So uh, apparently, though, there are plenty of like other composers who can emulate that style pretty well. 
so that's just, I guess, a footnote. It'll be interesting to see if the, anything they add to the game this year sounds different or and does it will it still sound appropriate yeah. or will it actually have like a different vibe to it. It'll be interesting to see. I feel like he's become a part of Doom's identity now, though, Mick Gordon. Right, that's, that's kind of the, the shame about it. it. Apparently it was over some... Well, I don't know. I didn't really keep on top of the why. Yeah, I guess I, I don't want to say too much more because I just... I don't want to assign blame or whatever because apparently it is a very it is a very involved, complicated story that I guess you're better off going to like the the, the official Reddit page or, or another uh, place covering it to get all the details. But it is a complicated situation. I guess I'll leave it at that. James, is there any chance that you played <laughs> anything other than uh, Final Fantasy XIV this last week? Did uh, play. Um... The uh, new Project Diva game that just came out on Switch. Uh, reviewed it for friend of the site, uh, Alex Steedhouse's uh, Nintendo Insider. So, but that's eh, all I really have to say about that. Is it? It's fun. I I enjoyed it, but it's also kind of weird because it's. Um, I'm assuming nobody else here has played the Project Diva series or any of those written games, right? No. Okay. Nope. So, the series itself started off on the PSP, and then ended up getting an arcade version down the line that then got ported to the PS4 in, like, 2016, 2017. I think it was 2016 in Japan, 2017 in the West. The Switch game, uh, which is uh, Project Eva Megamix, is sort of a port of the PS4 version, which is a port of the arcade game, which has slightly different mechanics because it has a very specific button layout on the arcade cabinet that... So you know how most controllers these days has kind of like a diamond shape for like the buttons that like... So like a PlayStation controller, it's like diamond shape. The way that the buttons are yeah, laid I get out. You. <laughs> um, the arcade cabinet, the buttons are laid out horizontally. And as a result of that, the note maps for these songs are designed with that horizontal button layouts in mind. And as a consequence, even though the series started out on PSP, which obviously has that more traditional layout, the um, PS4 and now the Switch versions, especially on the higher difficulties, are a bit weird to play with a controller because very specifically those songs were designed with a totally different layout in mind which makes it a little especially since one of the mechanics for uh the uh, arcade version is hold notes and those are in the original games but it's like you just hold one specific note for a little bit and then you're like holding nothing else well the way it works in the arcade version and the uh, ps4 and switch games is that while you're holding down a button, you can still tap other buttons in the song, and it wants you to kind of hold, like, gradually hold more and more of the buttons, which isn't so bad if it's, like, a horizontal layout, because you can kind of make it so that you're holding onto one but still have access to the other buttons pretty f perfectly fine. Not so much if you have a diamond shape, because if you're just using your thumb, even if you dual-wield, which is what's called when you uh, use the D-pad at for some of those buttons, that's can only hold two buttons at once. So there's some macros you can assign to the shoulder buttons that lets you use hold notes that way, but it's still very, very different. 
from the traditional arcade experience. As someone who doesn't know diddly about uh, rhythm games, would having those diddly. back of the controller, like an elite controller button, uh, help at all? Like where you can make uh, those probably a bit, probably a little bit, but it's still not nearly as intuitive as it if you're just playing the game on the arcade cabinet or with the arcade controller because those do exist though obviously you need to import them yeah i'm the sort of person where like i don't really play fighting games either but if you if you like handed me like an arcade stick uh with the six buttons or whatever i i would just feel like a toddler like i don't know what to press here like i am so much give me a keyboard and mouse or give me a controller like a dual like a dual stick controller anything else and i feel like i'm just an absolute idiot yeah so essentially it's the same game as future tone the ps4 game with a few changes um namely that it does have the uh, number of songs which would be a big issue except that um Future Tone had, like, over 200 songs on PS4, and this one has, like, 101, and then there's, like, DLC that you can get to add more. And the Project Diva games that were on, play on PSP and Vita, like, at most, they had, like, under 60. I think, technically, Project Diva Second had just over 60 if you got all the DLC. So, even though it has less songs than Future Tone, like, it does have some new ones, it... And it's still more songs on a portable system than has ever been available for before. So it it was it was a weird game to review, especially having so much history with the series myself and the fact that I actually have played quite a bit of put quite a bit of time into the arcade version that this game is based off of. Um, but yeah, fun. Just not really too much to talk about. It's a rhythm game. So so what's the name of this game? Project Diva, and what's the subtitle? Uh, Mega Mix. All right, I just I just wanted to make sure that you had stated that clearly. So yeah, that review is up on Nintendo Insider, which is kind of like a a, a site of one of our uh, of RPG sites friends. So we're in, we're in good uh, yeah good standing with each other. And then obviously when I was handing it off to you, I was teasing about Final Fantasy fourteen, but I'm actually really interested to hear your opinions on Shadowbringers because from an outsider's perspective, that seems to be kind of the high watermark of Final Fantasy XIV so far and the most, you know, contemporary of Final Fantasy XIV at the moment. So really want to hear what you think about it as someone who has just recently finished it, as far as I understand. I finished Shadowbringer's um, main scenario last night. Now, there's a few of the patch quests that are that I can still do because, like, um, patch 5.1 and 5.2 did come out already. So there is some story left that's in the game right now, but... As for the base, like, Shadowbringers experience, I have finished it, I saw the ending, and, man, where do I even begin? That's the, that's the tough thing of Shadowbringers, because, like, you, you, I kept reading all these impressions, and kept seeing all these people talking about how much they enjoyed Shadowbringers, and the tough, the tough thing when you see so many people talk about a game and how much they enjoyed it, it kind of leaves you with a certain expectation going in, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, because if something doesn't meet your expectations, that's disappointing. But on the flip side, if something does meet it or even exceeds it, then it's like, wow, I can't believe it was actually as good as people were saying. 
I don't know if uh, anyone else feels that way sometimes, but it's just... Um, Shadowbringers. Absolutely, I can 100% understand why it has so much critical acclaim, how it has so much acclaim in the fan base. It is, without a doubt, the best story that Final Fantasy XIV has told. Um, and I think a big part of it, well, there's, there's two main part of it, um, parts of it I see. One, the presentation. I think the I think I did mention that my one major problem with Stormblood is that it felt like most of the areas were too derivative of areas that were already like showcased in Final Fantasy XIV before that expansion came out, and the new areas that it did include were just not that interesting. Uh, ironically enough, even though all of the areas in Shadowbringers are supposed to be loosely based off of areas in base. Uh, Final Fantasy XIV, because the whole, spoiler alert, the whole story of Shadowbringers is that your character and the other scions of the Seventh Dawn are going to the First, which is an alternate world in the Final Fantasy XIV universe that um, is a reflection of the quote-unquote Source world, which is the uh, world that you inhabit for most of Final Fantasy XIV. So, I Norbrand, get it. It's like a shadow. I yeah. get it. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, Norvrant, or however you pronounce it, is super visually appealing. Like, every area in the game is incredibly different from the areas that have uh, been, that have already been in the game for years, and it's just really impressive the like even with some of the similar concepts like the rock tika greatwood is very very similar conceptually to um gridania and base game but there's just these little flourishes and the way that visually like they change the kind of vibe of the area like both are giant forests but even though they're very similar conceptually, the way that they're both portrayed, whether it's through the actual environment or the soundtrack, which, oh my god, I could go on and on about Shadowbringer's soundtrack. Like, retroactively, it's my favorite soundtrack of 2019, without a doubt. Um, Soken has absolutely... It's been really interesting just going through Final Fantasy XIV, kind of also charting Soken's... Um, um, his career, because he's been on Final Fantasy XIV for so long, and, like, even in Heavensward, he, had, he was doing amazing work, but, like, for Shadowbringers, it's just, like, gloves come off, it's just amazing, the, um, the vibe that the soundtrack gives off, and how it really helps sell the whole tone of the expansion, which is supposed to be somber, and you're branded in a world that's on the brink of destruction that might as well already be dead. It's just such a good soundtrack. But, um, the story. Oh, oh god, the story. So, you know how I've been talking about how for, like, god, the last, like, month or so about how much I enjoy when Final Fantasy XIV really ties its various, like, side stories together, like, sometimes in the main scenario, sometimes just in, like, the rant 
like random tidbits in a alliance ring where it's like, oh yeah, I know your sister because I'm I'm a botanist. Right. Like, we talked we talked about how it is the sort of game that refuses to let story beats just be dropped. It'll 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 go yeah. out of its way to pull, to pull out of what it knows you've experienced and make it relevant in the in the current story, which I think from an outsider's perspective is super impressive. And now I just want to really hear what yeah. you're going to say next. Okay, so. This isn't really a spoiler because uh, um, Square Enix said themselves in the uh, lead-up to Shadowbringers that this was the case. The Crystal Tower Alliance Raid series, so the very first 24-person Alliance Raid series from base game Realm Reborn, that has a storyline to it. And... So, the storyline for that one Alliance Raid series is the most relevant story bit for Shadowbringers. Like, there's two main story situations in Final Fantasy XIV that really encapsulate the plot for Shadowbringers, and the Crystal Tower Raid series is one of those. And it's really impressive and also kind of baffling. I'll be honest, it's kind of baffling that it's, ta it's taking them until the 5.3 patch to require players to play through Crystal Tower because so much of the story and specifically with a well, one character I don't want to really go into too much if you played the Crystal Tower raid series and you already know from like beginning you you have a pretty good idea who this character is but there's this one character in Shadowbringers that if you've done the Crystal Tower it's very obvious who they are and it, it just feels weird that so, it's going to be required for the main scenario quests in the patches, but if they were going to do that then, why didn't they just make it required for Shadowbringers? It's weird. So, let me um, understand so this properly. It's calling back to an event from, like, six years ago that is basically relevant here, crucially? Not an event, because Alliance or, raids are... Raid series is... <laughs> Uh, so basically, uh, alliance raids are 24-person raids that are, um, uh, they're not meant to be super challenging, they're meant to more to be spectacles, I'd say. Like, the eight-person raids are the ones that are meant to be more challenging, the extreme, uh, uh, trials are meant to be more challenging. The alliance raid series, the Crystal Tower, um, series, was the first alliance raid series. It was in Realm Reborn, and... Yeah, so does that answer your question? Well, I mean, that means some people played this series like six years ago, right? And now yeah. it's like crucially like relevant to the story now? Yes. Am I, am I understanding that right? Okay. Like, to put it into perspective how crucial this Alliance Raid series is, so the Crystal Tower itself is one of the first things you see in Shadowbringers. Like, once the title card pops up, you see the Crystal Tower in the background. The main hub area in Shadowbringers is called the Crystarium. And the, and one of the first things that you hear from a specific character is, yes, this is the same Crystal Tower that's from the Source World. I teleported it here. So I have a follow-up question similar to Adam's. So I'm the sort of person where if I'm playing an MMO, I don't mind having to, like, pug or find a random group for group content. But if you're the sort of person that says, hey, I, I, I kind of like the idea of an MMO, but I want to play by myself. 
for Shadowbringers, is it kind of like, well, tough luck, you're going to need to find a group for Crystal Tower. It's not that hard, but you still got to find a group. Is that just kind of how it is? Well, it's still, just to even get the Shadowbringers, you need to uh, do uh, group content anyways, because there's trials, yeah, so there's dungeons, that sort of thing. But, so um, at that point, it's it's well established that you're playing an MMO. You're going to have to play with other people sometimes. Yeah. Though, ironically enough, one of the new features for Shadowbringers is, and I actually went through all of the dungeons my first time this way, is trusts, which are a mechanic where, since you're stranded in this world with the other signs of the Seventh Dawn, they're helping you, like, kind of exploring things. So when you get to dungeons, you actually have the option of going through the dungeons in a pre-made AI companion party. And when you go through these dungeons with um, these party members, they'll actually have unique dialogue for um, certain elements in the dungeons. Like, for example, one of the later game dungeons, uh, Mount Golg, there's a boss in the middle of the um, dungeon that is in the that's kind of in the opening movie for Shadowbringers and the two characters that were fighting it in the opening movie have a little like a small exchange if you have both of them in your party when you're fighting that mid boss uh, I think that's actually kind of neat where it's like here is something that I don't know how do I say this this isn't this isn't the way we intended for the dungeon to be to be ran, but we're going to make it so that it still feels like a valid way to play through it if you want to play through it by yourself. And then you actually get like those extra character interactions if you manage to play through it that way. How far does yeah. the trust system go? Is it only like five mans that have that? Uh, four mans, but uh, yeah, it's only the main game dungeons. I'm not sure if the patch dungeons let you do it. Probably not, because from what I understand, once you've beat uh, Shadowbringers, all of your trusts uh, levels get uh, reset to level 71, so you have to level them up again. Because, like, in the main game, they level with you, but, yeah. So. And I, I'd imagine there's specific AI for each of the encounters that they have to code, so. Well, it's, it's sort of the thing where it's like, you don't want to make it so that uh, you don't want to go too far, where if you're really trying to incentivize playing with other people and having like an optimal or well suited comp, that they just trivialize it and say like, "Well, just grab the uh, grab the AI. They're 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 just as good, if not better, than anyone else you could get to, you could bring along." I hate to bring up this comparison again, but uh, the original Guild Wars would have like a hero system where it was just AI controlled party members where you could control all of their abilities. And then, in a lot of ways, they end up being better than other players. So the game almost became a single-player game. But the fact that the trusts are only limited to a certain dungeon type, I think, is in itself a balancing act. You yeah. kind of want to make it... You want to make playing through the game largely by yourself like a route that is possible, but without being like the most optimal way either, I guess. It's a weird thing to, to try to balance. Um. But yeah, what I'll say is is that um, it's really tough to talk about the Shadowbringer story because there's like speci there's like specific story beats in Shadowbringers that don't necessarily have to deal with anything that had come before in the story that are great on their own. 
But first off, like, even talking about those, it's still spoilers for Shadowbringers. But, like, so much of what makes Shadowbringers as a story stand out and really resonate is just how much it deals with these plot threads that have been in the game since as far back as Realm Reborn has been in the game for, like, several expansions. Stuff that, like... So There's like a, a specific character from the Heaven's Word post-game patches that you'd feel like you were never going to see again, who ends up being a voice-acted main role in the uh, Shadowbringers expansion that basically travels with your main character throughout the story, and they're... And it's, God, even talking about it much more than that kind of spoil, like, if people are, like, in the Heaven's Word post-game patches, they probably are already starting to get an idea of what I'm getting at here, but it's just so impressive. Like, and one of the, po- um, one of the uh, Love Lady dungeons, the way it ties into the story of Shadowbringers and the way it ties into the story of previous content like raids not just the crystal tower raid but also stuff like regular eight-man raids like alexander and omega etc etc not just from a story standpoint in the dungeon but also in the way that the music for that dungeon is presented is just amazing and like i think i've said that ff14 is at its best when it's confident in its own story and how it ties things together, and that dungeon, I think, is the best example of it so far. So, um, my question is, is that now that you've been in the main story, and I know you have a few other patches to go through, at this point in Shadowbringers, if you were going to log in to do your dailies or whatever, like, what sorts of things are there right now, if you are inclined to like work towards like like the, the the MMO part of the MMO here where you where you log in like what are, what are the sorts of things that people are kind of uh, experiencing daily as they uh, as they wait for the the five point three patch to drop. So there's a few things you can do if you're talking about loot progression, then it would have to be the extreme primal fights and the savage uh, tier raid content. Uh, that's the main thing. There's also, um, for just loot, um, not necessarily, like, powerful loot, but, like, other things that I could do. I haven't actually touched eating yet, which is an entire sub-game mode, which is apparently pretty popular. There's the hunts, or, like, hunt trains, which it's, like, on-field content where there's, um named strong uh, enemy types that you can hunt to get uh, seals or and whatnot. Uh, there's um, exploring, for, like, uh, further exploring deep dungeons like Palace of the Dead and Heaven on High. There's Beast Tribe side quests and stories and, like, stuff I can get from them. I can level alt classes. Like, one of the things that uh, Shadowbringers has is that not only do you have... You don't necessarily have job quests, you have role quests, and they have they each have their own specific story attached to them. And then there's like a penultimate story if you do each of the role quests to level eighty, which means you have to level a combat role for like physical DPS, magical DPS, healer, and tank. And then there's 
there's a lot I can do. And there's like crafting, there's more gathering. There's, is this uh, all, uh, is this like, when you say, as someone who hasn't played Final Fantasy XIV, when you say Palace of the Dead, I feel like that's a well-established thing that's been in the game a long time, right? So that's not, that's not yeah. Shadowbringers content. Yeah, specifically Shadowbringers content. Relevant. Yeah, specifically Shadowbringers content. There's two raid tiers, the Alliance raid and Extreme Primal Fights. Specifically for Shadowbringers, that's it. But that's because a lot of, like, again, 5.3 won't be out for, well, we don't know when it's going to be out because of the whole COVID-19 thing. But when 5.3 comes out, there will be another Alliance raid. I don't think they're going to add any more, like, 8-man raid tiers until 5.4. I don't know. Maybe 5.3? I, I I'm not fully like uh, familiar with the way that patches come out specifically since I've done this all in like one blow. But um, there is stuff that's going to be coming out. But right now, as for specific Shadowbringers content, it's it's definitely interesting because I think it's a testament to how just how good the story and the base game experience for Shadowbringers is. That even though there's objectively less content in this expansion right now because there's still three full fat patches well technically more uh to come i still am confident in saying that shadowbringers is without a doubt the best final fantasy 14 expansion yeah i wasn't trying to judge and be like oh that's it but the fact that you're naming a few things that are not specifically shadowbringers but are still relevant i think is basically good and well, it's, not a... it's not it's go ahead it's not necessarily relevant in terms of loot progression, but rather in terms of things that you can do to get stuff like uh, cosmetics, like mounts and all that sort of thing. Hey, which uh, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's interesting. It's It definitely feels weird that I, uh, again, still have some of those patch quests, but it's like it's two patches worth of quests, so I could probably finish that today, and it's like, huh. I actually got through Shadowbringers. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say like, what's but, it, what's it feel like to be quote unquote at the finish line or soon to be? Because you've been up to this point, you've been on like this giant tear through years worth of developed content, and now you're 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 see the light at the end of the tunnel. Does that feel weird or different? It definitely feels weird. I remember when I first when I finally picked uh, Final Fantasy XIV back up again, like a month and a half, two months ago. I was like, yeah, I'll start playing this again. I, I'll be honest, I didn't actually think I would get this far. I thought I'll probably get burnt out again. I probably won't. I wasn't even confident if I would get through the Aroma Born patches. I, I think it wasn't until I was done with the Heavensward MSQ that I knew, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it. It's just weird. Because <laughs> it's like, I checked my playtime, like, last night once I saw the final cutscene. It's, like, over 500 hours logged. It's, like, damn. Jesus. I mean, I look at, like, how much time I put into, like, a game like Monster Hunter World, and it's not yet at 500 hours, and I feel like I played that game to death. But that's just kind of MMOs for you. I don't even want to look at what my MMO playtimes are. Oh, I guarantee you, enjo- a thousand hours for you. Yeah, it is. And I've enjoyed uh, vicariously living through you. I've said that last week with Final Fantasy XIV, so uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I do hope that you keep on top so that you can tell us what 5.3 is like yeah. and further on when... <laughs> no well, the hard, part, 
the hard part's already done. I'm caught up. <laughs> there you go. Any final thoughts on Shadowbringers? Any closing statement? Um, I can fully understand why people sing the praises of the story so much. Like, again, I, I keep going back to it, but Shadowbringers story is one of the best stories I've seen in an RPG. And I didn't think that was necessarily possible for an MMO. Wonderful closing statement. No sarcasm. Legit, legit think so. <laughs> All right, and that leaves me. Uh, so I talked about this last week, but I've been playing a little indie game called Bug Fables, the Everlasting Sapling. And uh, I picked a very interesting time to play it because this game is unashamedly basically playing in a Paper Mario Thousand Year Door style setup. Which, since starting last week, we got a new entry in the Paper Mario series announced in Paper Mario and the Origami King. So now, like, I have relevant news to talk about as I discuss this game that I randomly picked up about a week and a half ago. So, uh, so this is an indie game uh, that released on PC late last year, and it's releasing at the end of the month for all consoles. So there's actually a lot relevant to talk about this game right now, which I didn't really plan. I just kind of picked it up on a whim. But for anyone that needs a very super short background, Paper Mario originally released in the year 2000, followed by a sequel in 2004 in The Thousand Year Door. And these are legitimate Mario RPGs. Uh, they kind of followed after the Super Mario RPG on the Super Nintendo. Uh, but since The Thousand Year Door 15 years ago, Paper Mario has really more strongly leaned towards that paper craft aesthetic rather than the RPG aesthetic, which obviously a lot of people very, feel very strongly about. So Bug Fables is an indie game from a Panama studio called Moonsprout Games. This is their debut title, which kind of adapts that idea to their own, to their own, you know, their new project here without specifically like they borrow that paper aesthetic without deliberately calling it out so there really is no like folding or like paper craft or like any of that they just they just borrow the uh the style and just leave it at that and where they really focus is they make they use the same kind of rpg sensibilities in terms of how the how the story is told and how the battles work and how the progression works and i went into this game thinking that it was just going to be at best you know a, a serviceable copycat and at worst it would be like a cringy knockoff and i actually found that like i enjoyed this game way more than i thought it would i don't know if it's just nostalgia playing i don't know if it's just not having played this style of game since 2004 i don't know what it is but all i know is that my takeaway was incredibly positive on this game and it might be somehow some way my favorite game that i've played so far this year is there anything that sets it apart massively from the paper mario games in your eyes i think uh in two ways it does so paper mario like obviously yeah, so obviously this is themed kind of like around bugs, which is just kind of silly to just so blatantly state. Um, but I think it's kind of, it's kind of like I got a cutesy art style that allows it to be like really creative and how they design their characters. And I talked a little bit about that last week. Um, but the main differences that I think actually make this in some ways a stronger game than Paper Mario is that obviously Mario is in most cases a mute protagonist. And then he has these partner characters that kind of join pretty much one per chapter 
and they're relevant for the chapter they're in. And then after that point, they kind of sit in the background. Where Bug Fables gives you a trio of protagonists, which by the end of chapter one, you have all of them. Or maybe it's right at the start of chapter two. And then that is your playable party throughout the whole game. So what that means is, is that you've got three deliberately written characters that are with you the entire way. You don't you don't get introduced to someone new and then someone else is dropped as soon as their relevant story beat is is over. You've got this whole party and their their personal stories will kind of weave in and out of the overarching narrative. And in that ways, I think that as a pure story, this game is actually stronger in terms of character interaction, at least, than any Paper Mario game. Just not because Paper Mario games are decidedly poor, but just because they're limited in the fact that they star Mario. You know, kind of like this mascot character at first, and a and an actually written character not doesn't come into play as much. So you've got this trio of characters, and since you don't have like Mario plus partner, instead you've got more of a traditional JRPG party. And then each of these characters has, uh, story-wise, their own like their own uh, characterization in terms of how they feel about the world, what they value. Their, their backstories, their individual little little moments that they interact with, the, you know, each other and the world around them. But then also in game, like in a battle system, they each have their own roles to play where it's like um, the three characters are named V, Kabu, and Leaf. And no one's going to remember that, but they they each have like, for, in, for instance, Kabu is a beetle and he's like super tanky and he does, has the most HP and he's kind of like your your offensive character. Leaf is kind of like the magic caster. He does buffing and debuffing. And then V is kind of like a jack of all trades. She she does like, she like handles items really well. She can attack from a distance. She's kind of like a utility knife of the party. And it's in that way where I actually found this game like really interesting just to play where you might find some battles that you fight where you just simply put Kabu in front and have him eat all the damage while the other two support. But then there's other you know, there's other places where you end up having to shift around who you're using, how you're using them, uh, what metals you equip, what abilities you use. Like, this is a legit RPG. It's not just like a simple, fun, woohoo, fun, little cheery game. There's actually strategy involved. And like, there's like, I played the game in hard mode, and I actually saw the game over screen a handful of times. And then I had to reconfigure my strategy and go back in and overcome the challenges that were put forth. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut out there. Uh, but you can already see by the way I'm talking about it, how certain things like this, uh, I just wasn't expecting going in and I ended up like being really engaged, not just by the little, the, the world that I put forth, but just by how the game played as well. Yeah. I've heard some pretty good things about this game and you're, you pretty much convinced me to try it at some point. It is weird no, now, no, now knowing that there is a new Paper Mario coming out when we haven't really seen a lot of it, but it's hard to tell, like, is this more like an RPG or more like the other games, which is more like adventure kind of paper craft gimmick, but hard to, you know, it's hard to see, but <laughs> Bug Fable seems like it's a really good game on its own right, based on everything I've heard, so... <laughs> Yeah, people are kind of scouring those Origami King screenshots to be like, hey, look, Mario's HP is higher at this screen than it is in that screen. That <laughs> means you can actually level it up. And the fact that people are going to that extent to try to prove to themselves that, yes, there is an RPG underneath here, 
Um, hopefully that is the case. Obviously, as RPG site, we hope that to be the case. But I just want to tell you that if you're looking for a game that plays like the Thousand Year Door and less like Sticker Star, Bug Fables is right there, or it will be there on console in a few weeks. Um, obviously, I'm probably not going to say like when this releases on, I think like May 28th, like the day before. Let me make sure I'm right on that. Yeah, it's May 28th. I had to Google it. To check so, it so, so, yeah, so, so it pretty much releases right alongside Xenoblade. And I'm not going to tell anyone to play this little indie game before Xenoblade, but I, I enjoyed Bug Fables more than I enjoyed Final Fantasy VII Remake. I feel almost sacrilegious saying that, but I don't know. I'm only being honest to my takeaway having played through the game. I just think that it's so smartly made. It has its own identity. By the end of it, I, I wasn't feeling like, man, that was a really nice Paper Mario like. I just kind of thought more independently. That was a well-made, smart, clever game that I just played. Like at the at the end of there, I didn't really care, or even like have it in the front of my mind that it borrowed so many systems from another series. It just feels genuine. It doesn't. At the end of the game, I felt like calling it as if it was in the shadow of something else. Had been doing it a disservice. So this game has a very straightforward story. It's like, I feel like so many experiences nowadays, they feel like they have a, an obligation to like really like at some point, two thirds or three fourths of the way game saying like, this is what's really going on. Or here's what you're really supposed to think. Like they, they feel like they have to, in some way, pull the rug out from under you. Do you know what I'm getting at? Where Bug Fables is just more straightforward. It, it kind of clearly puts a premise forward, clearly identifies the protagonist. And there really is no twist to it, but I don't think the game suffers for that. It's yeah, kind of I, like I refreshing. You. Go ahead, Adam. No, I get you. Where sometimes it feels like storylines, whether it's a game or a movie or whatnot, I just feel like it has to have some sort of twist or betrayal of expectations at some point, and that it's almost like a requisite thing. And maybe some people might see it as a bad thing if a storyline does not have one of those, but that's not really the case. Yeah, so this is a very straightforward narrative, but I just think that the world that it inhabits allows it to still be incredibly fulfilling to watch it play out. Like the antagonist is identified very early and surprise, he remains the antagonist throughout the whole game and you you know, you defeat him at the end. That's not a spoiler. You come out victorious. Um, and there really is no way, there's no point at the back half of the game where it's like, you've got to recontextualize everything you know up to this point. It's like, no, it just it's plays out the, the way it's expected. Yeah. But the thing is, is like, for instance, here are some of the components of the game that I think really play to that sort of style's favor. First of all, pretty much every character, at least the vast majority of them, are named NPCs with unique designs. You won't go to the Bee Kingdom or whatever and see just a bunch of generic bees meant to fill out the space. They will be characters with names. And sometimes it'll just be like, so-and-so is a shop owner. That's all they are. Or so-and-so is... Uh, the guard at the gate of the factory here. That's all he is. Like, obviously not every character is going to be super important, but the fact that they're all named or mostly all named with unique designs just feels like everyone is deliberately placed. It just makes it feel like this is how it should be when you're going to, I don't know, the termite mound kingdom at the end of the game and you feel like here are the people that live in this place. This is what they think about the world. This is how they feel about explorers coming to, you know, coming uninvited to their lands. It's just, there's there's like a sense of purity to it, which I feel like 
it doesn't feel like an amusement park where it's like, uh, this this area is wasp themed or this area is bee themed or whatever. It actually feels like this is what a city based on this idea would look like and act like and be like. And then in the original Paper Mario games, uh, you have your Goomba partner who can tattle, which is basically they can provide their input on any other location in the game or any character in the game. And the one thing that Bug Fables does really well is since you have a trio of protagonists, they can all chime in at any moment on any location in the game, which I think is kind of like an absurd level of detail that they didn't need to go that far. I do love that. But they do anyways. When a game does that. So it's um, like you, you can go up to a shopkeeper and they happen to be a beetle and you press enter on the keyboard or whatever button ends up being. And it says like, Hey, Kabu, Kabu's a beetle. This person kind of looks like you. And then the moth will chime in like, what, are you saying all beetles look the same? It's just stuff like that where it's just silly and whimsical. And uh, and then even in battle, if you tattle to get a character, if you tattle on an enemy to figure out how much HP they have or how much defense they have, you have three characters in your party, right? V, Kabu, and Leaf. And, re- and depending on who you identify the enemy with, each of the three of them will have a unique line of dialogue saying, Oh my god, this this sprout is flying. We have to have V attack it from below to get him to knock down. The fact that there are like there's like the best area in this game is like 80 total enemies, and there are basically three lines of dialogue for each, depending on who you use to tattle it, including the bosses and everything. That's just absurd. Like, I'm not gonna see two-thirds of those because I'm gonna tattle an enemy once to see what their HP is, and then probably, unless I'm going out of my way, not do it again. But I could because I could want to see what the other two characters have to say about it. I love like, that's the sort of love... One thing you said in your review that I thought was really cool um, was uh, talking about the main characters. V is the B character. Yes, is that right? Um, yeah. And like she, apparently, the premise of her character is that she leaves her B kingdom to be with like with like these other explorers, and it kind of takes that sort of animal like characteristics and almost like puts, you know, like different animals have different values and how they different bugs and like how they should behave in like bee kingdoms, like they're, they're, they value hard work, I suppose. Um, but the fact that she wants to go off and be part of this explorer team, which is like not bees, but other types of bugs is like considered a problematic thing to some extent. And it like takes this, if I'm understanding this correctly from your review, it's, it's like this, this idea that they're just bugs, but sort of like puts, you know, this kind of this perspective on how different types of bugs would see the world differently. And you sort of mentioned that with like the termite mound and how they would see the world. And just, I think that's kind of neat too, to kind of take this kind of cartoonish idea and actually have just a hint of that sort of, you know, dialogue in there as well. Yeah. um, They definitely do lean there just enough to make it feel uh, significant without being overbearing. Like, for instance, the Wasp Kingdom is super aggressive. For the most part, they're the antagonist, which kind of plays into what you'd imagine a wasp would, sound, would be like. Uh, the roaches are kind of like this ancient race that has been around forever because they can't die. You know, stuff like that. Um, and That's pretty clever. I guess one... <laughs> yeah, they, they, they have fun with the setting. And I, like... I was reading some of the Steam reviews for this just to see, like, what other people thought, just to see, like, 
so obviously I wrote my review for the website and I thought very highly of this game, more than I really ever expected going in. And I just kind of wanted to see what other people thought about it. And so, someone said someone said a line that I thought was just very matter of fact, but I kind of agreed with, like, I like bugs more after playing this game. <laughs> like, that's so matter of fact, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can go that far, but just they they have a lot of fun with the setting and it's just... I don't know. I enjoyed it a lot. I never felt like it's cutesy. It's it's almost like a Saturday morning cartoon sort of thing. But uh, like Cabu is this beetle and he's he's almost dressed like an armored soldier. And he's like very uh, he values like people who kind of do what they say they're going to do and, and stick forth to their convictions. And then V is obviously kind of like this free spirit, which puts her in contrast with the rest of her kingdom. Uh, Leaf kind of has a more deliberate story that I can't really get into because of spoilers. Not that the story really gets into like these super dramatic moments, but long story short, like I don't play a whole lot of indie games, probably less than I should. And I feel kind of like sheepish that the only reason I played this game is because I thought so highly of Paper Mario. And it's like, well, this game is emulating that. So you got to try it. I feel like people who enjoyed Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door to any extent should try this game. I can't guarantee that you'll like it, but there's a good chance you'll love it. I think it does a lot of things really well, really smart. It's well made. It's It's got its own identity. It's it's just a creative full package experience. And then I guess hopefully, hopefully we feel the same way about Origami King in two months. We'll see. You've definitely sold me on wanting to try it at the very least, and I had no interest before, so I think that's a that's a good sell. <laughs> yep, I it's the favorite game I played so far this year. The year's not halfway over and yet. You played, so we'll yeah, you played Final Fantasy VII remake, so <laughs> yeah, I feel like I don't know. Like some people are gonna point that out and say, like, well, how how is that even possible? But I don't know. I can only be honest to my own takeaway. I feel more strongly about this game than I did after seeing the credits of Final Fantasy VII Remake. Should it be that way? I don't know, but I, I'm not gonna. I'm not well, gonna I mean, recontextualize. I sort of mentioned last week, even though I really like Final Fantasy VII Remake, I kind of wish there was a little bit more of a game there um, because it is a, it's almost more of a spectacle than anything else, which is fine. But from what you said about bug fables, it seems like it's just a different sort of. You know, that's the kind of that's the thing with RPGs. Really, is they come in so many forms. And sometimes some will just click with you more than others, even if the budgets are, you know, magnitudes different. I think because Final Fantasy VII Remake is probably my favorite game of the year so far. But like the side content, I visiting it after finishing the main story, I'm like, oh, okay. Guess I'll just oh, I'll wait for the next part rather than getting all of this done because none of this is very fun. Like the, the main story is so, that's actually a good leaping off point that Bug Fables actually does a really good job with its side content. So at its surface, it's not that inspired. You go to like a, a, a quest board and you see like these different tasks that people want you to do. So like at its surface, that sounds really like banal. But then you'll do these things and there'll be like optional fights with unique bosses, with unique designs. And they, like some of them require different sorts of strategies than they're used to. Like there's one early game side quest where you fight like this flamboyant ant who all of his attacks will heal him. So you have to be like really glass cannon in order to take him down. Because if you're if you're conservative in how much damage you're outputting, he's just going to heal up before you're able to ever get his HP to zero. So like the fact that that's a side quest, which requires you to like change how you're playing the game just for that one quest. 
And then at the end of when you uh, when you finish that quest, you unlock like this kind of underground tavern, which has its own like sets of bounty quests and a unique shop. Like that could have been so much less. It could have just been like, take this guy out. Here's a cash reward. You're done. But so many of these like introduce unique boss fights or different sorts of rewards for doing them or even like different gameplay styles. It's like I felt like you, you, Bug Fables is not a sort of game you want a critical path and just do the main story. I feel like you'd be missing so much. Or Final Fantasy VII Remake, if you said, eh, I don't want to find stray cats or fight enemies in this warehouse next to Sector 3, I'd be like, eh, you're not missing too much. But yeah, when I played through this game and I did write a review for the website that I put up, I wasn't going to say like, well, am I allowed to like this game more than the big AAA Square Enix release? And I kind of decided, yes, I'm allowed that. If someone has a problem with it, well, that's that's their opinion. I do love the idea that like you'd feel bad about liking a game more because it's an indie like that. That's that does speak a lot to like how we perceive these big AAA games. Like they have to be better. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I cool. and I and I and like I obviously I don't want to give the wrong impression. I liked a ton about Final Fantasy VII Remake. I just liked Bug Fables a notch more. That's all it is. I mean, you're arguing eights, nines, and tens at this point. Like they're both really good games. And just to compare them, even at the first place, it's a bit asinine to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a great game. I think everyone should try it. There you go. All right. So we don't actually have a ton of news stories this week because a lot of the stuff that was announced in the last seven days is not specifically RPG related, even though it is stuff we're interested in. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I am pretty excited about this Tony Hawk uh, 1 and 2 oh, remaster sure. slash remake. Yes. I have no legitimate reason to, to talk about it here on this podcast, uh, but it is something I'm excited for. Uh, I did play the first two games a ton on N64 way back in the day. Uh all of the skaters are just like they were rescanned in and they're just like as they are today not as they were like when the original games came out so you're playing a bunch of middle-aged dudes <laughs> it's actually kind of getting hilarious. older all the time yep but we do obviously have a few rpg things to talk about uh obviously i guess we'll just start off with uh paper mario origami king so we kind of obviously uh by inherently introduced this game as I was talking about Bug Fables just because it so strongly borrows from that series. So Nintendo kind of dropped out of the blue on Wednesday, I believe, that Paper Mario The Origami King will be releasing on July 17th, so like two months away. And there were rumors about a new Paper Mario game previously from, I think, VentureBeat that said it's a return to form for the series. It's a true RPG it's on its way. It'll release this year, but I don't think anyone really expected that it would be out before the end of the summer. I mean, so like two months in advance. Yeah, um, I think there were rumors that the Paper Mario was happening, but even if even if you just thought about it like with any sort of logic at all, it made sense that there might be a Paper Mario in the works because like every Nintendo console has had a Paper Mario since the original, and the Switch is a few years old and hasn't had one yet, and we know from the credits that Intelligent Systems did not have its whole staff on Three Houses. In fact, it was much smaller than expected. It was largely Koei Tecmo. So we knew they were doing something. 
And Paper Mario is basically their other franchise that, they, that is active and alive right now, with uh, Advance Wars being not so active and alive. So we, I think it, it, it was sensible to expect a Paper Mario eventually, and here it is. But I guess they didn't. I guess they just decided to announce it and release it within like a two month span. Um, they've done this a few times with a few games, but yeah, nothing. Not gonna have a big marketing cycle, you know, like years in advance. Maybe Paper Mario doesn't need it. But yeah, here it is, and we'll be, we can play it in like two months. Does that kind so of worry I... anyone that there's like not going to be a marketing thing at all, or is that just a, a really cool move by Nintendo? Well, not worry. Worry seems is like inherently negative. But what do you guys think about the fact that it's out in two months? It is kind of weird, but I think I prefer this over the uh, two and a half years away thing, or more like for like Metroid Prime Four or whatever. They did a similar thing with uh, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon DX in a direct, and that, uh, from what I understand, that sold over a million copies. So, which is actually really good for that series because Super Mystery Dungeon didn't do super hot. So, I mean, if that works, I I, guess. I don't really personally like personally I don't really mind it at all. Like I'm not really one to like really get into hype cycles or whatever. So it's just like, hey, Paper Mario, I have not played Color Splash. And that's because I thought Sticker Star was garbage. Um, sorry, I just think that game is one of the worst design games I've ever played. So, so I actually, yeah, wow, it's, it's 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 terrible. And I'll, I, I can get into really that in weird. time. It's, it's actually really weird how with this announcement, like the thing that really stuck, stuck sticks out to me is that like there's some people that have been coming out of the woodwork to almost attack people that didn't like Sticker Star and Color Splash. But... All the people I know that didn't like Sticker Star and Color Splash are saying, this still doesn't look like what I want, but it looks, so far it looks better than Sticker Star and Color Splash. So it's kind of weird where these people that are complaining about people that apparently aren't excited for this game because they hated Color um, well, Sticker Star and Color Splash. It's, it's like, who are they talking about? Pretty much all the Paper Mario fans I know are like, yeah, this looks all right. This looks better. Yeah, to it's be fair, for- um, I I hadn't played. Uh, what I was getting at before is I hadn't played Color Splash because Sticker Star burned me so so hard. I, I actually because of this announcement, I went ahead and ordered a, a used copy off of eBay. Um, just like you know what, I'm just gonna try it and hopefully maybe get something out of it. And if I hate it, I hate it. Form but your own opinion on it. Just, yeah, just, yeah, exactly. Like if I if I do dislike it, I can actually like substantiate. Yeah, yeah, this didn't fix anything, but. To be fair, it's not that I don't like Sticker Star because it's not really RPG-ish. I actually find that there are actually like big design flaws in the game, specifically related around the thing. It's literally called things. Uh, element is the is the main offender. But I'm actually one of those people who thought Super Paper Mario is actually a pretty good game on its own right. But it's some people don't like that one either for the Wii because it's it's more of like a platformer RPG hybrid and not like the turn-based RPG of the earlier games. So I'm not one of those people that just don't like it because it's not an RPG, because I thought I thought Super Paper Mario is totally fine. It's just Sticker Star kind of is so bad. It's all around. It's terrible. But this new game, there's not a whole lot to go on. Like the battle system seems that from what we've seen, it has like this, you're on like some sort of like rotating arena tile. With, it's almost like a dial with different like, levels like concentric circles and you sort of rotate somehow 
these circles to line up enemies and attack them. And you're supposed to, it, the, the trailer and the footage that's been shown so that you line up enemies and attack them in a line. And there's been people scouring, try to see how much RPG stuff that they can see in the game. It, we won't really know until we get to play it, but uh, I, I, maybe we should mention that Nintendo's website calls it an adventure game again. So, like, who knows? But the eShop uh, calls it an RPG, at least, like, one of the eShops does. So it's interesting. Like, what is it? But people have, like, looked at, like, the, the, the trailer or the screen show, like, a bomb-bomb partner. And it seems to kind of be, like, splitting the difference. Or one, of the, one of the criticisms people have for anything past Super Paper Mario is that they've gotten rid of any of the unique designs and are just using, like, staple Mario toads and bombs and Goombas. And so far, uh, Origami King, outside of the 3D origami-like characters, like anything that's in the paper uh, styling is just, again, a borrowed Mario uh, or, like classic character design. But it shows Mario with this Bomb-Omb character who says, like, hey, I'm Bomb-Omb. Uh, it's like, is that a partner character? He's not a unique design, but it shows him kind of like tagging behind Mario, so... Maybe they've maybe they're still not doing the 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 unique characterization that they did Super Paper Mario and earlier, but they're bringing back partners. And then I already talked about how people saw the uh, HP like value going up in the upper left corner. That's how people. That's how desperate people are scouring this stuff for any proof that it'll have any common DNA with something like the Thousand Year Door. So it's kind of like maybe maybe it has just enough of that in it, but we won't know until we know. Besides just inherent like curiosity about the series because and i say this a lot that i haven't played the series but I, I just missed it um this trailer didn't really do that much for me like besides wanting to be a part of this super paper well not super paper mario but paper mario hype that everyone else has it, it just kind of looked okay we didn't really get too much details from it um that's where i'm at with it but one of the things about the trailer that didn't sit well with me like completely was that a lot of it showed like kind of like spectacle sort of stuff like look at this cool paper effect that we're doing with this paper mache stuff yeah. and it seemed like really tries to have camera home like look at all these cool paper style themed things that we're doing in these scenes but like that's not the reason why people like the first two games the first two games it's actually like brian was saying in his bug fables talk earlier is like the paper stuff was almost just like the aesthetic like base but it didn't like go too deep into that i know like the thousand year door there were you did get like exploration upgrades it's like hey now you can turn into a paper airplane and jump this gap but it wasn't like the cutscenes had like look at this giant uh you know paper like origami thing or whatever like it's just the styling and so I don't know. I, don't, yeah, I feel there's, like there's, there's, there's no point in Bug Fables. There's no point in Bug Fables at all where it ever says like, aha, this world is made of paper. Did you remember that? It just borrows that style without explaining it. And I don't think it needs to. And so you, the original... You think they... Go for it. Go ahead. After you. All right. I was just going to say that Bug Fables at no point reminds you that it's quote-unquote made of paper because i don't think it really even is supposed to be it just uses that style just without explanation which i think is fine and the original two paper mario games they kind of leaned into it a little bit but not overtly like there's a few points where it's like here you roll up into a you roll up into a like a, a little corkscrew and you roll under this gap because you're made of paper or whatever but like that's not the reason people love the games 
in my opinion. But then starting with Sticker Star, Color Splash, and Origami King, which you can almost tell just by the titles of those games alone, that they really lean hard. Like, do you remember that this game has got a paper aesthetic? Because this one has stickers. This one has paint that you fill in uncolored areas. And then this one has 3D paper objects made out of origami. Like, yeah, we get it. You're kind of hammering us over the head with it at this point. So you think they might be missing the point again with this one? Well, I don't want to say that that is the only... I'm not going to say that the only point that these games are allowed to have is to play like Thousand Year Door. Uh, Origami King or even like Color Splash might be super well-made games with super creative uses of their their aesthetic that they decided to go with. But that's not the reason I loved Thousand Year Door. So I'm not going to think that I'll have a high affinity for these games either if they don't occupy the same space. I actually didn't think about that, how like people just call it the Thousand Year Door and that has nothing that subtitle has nothing to do with paper. You know? <laughs> just Yeah, that's true. That's what the that, that's what the story is about. Where the other ones, uh Super Paper Mario is called that because it's a mix between Paper Mario and Super Mario. But like uh, you know, Sticker Star, Color Splash, and now Origami King. I guess that kind of is just labeling what I kind of said before, how it really leans into that paper element. So, yeah. like I guess that's fine, but that's... I guess that's just what it is, and it's not really what I came for, which is just how it is. Nothing else to say about it. Play Bug Fables. I will. But anyways, that comes out in two months. So we'll be able to go from uh, speculation to actual impressions in not too long. All right. To change topics completely, and another game that I played semi-recently is uh, Fallout 76. I'm sorry. We have to talk about it because they announced something for it. But anyways, so I gave my impressions on Wastelanders, which came out in April, you know, back when it came out. So I'm not going to re- rehash that. But basically, following the release of that, uh, Bethesda has released a new roadmap for basically what's in it for this year of Fallout 76. And I just want to say, as someone who's followed this game a bit, that compared to some other titles, such as like Anthem, uh, Bethesda has actually done a relatively remarkable job at hitting their roadmaps. You might say that the output from that is not very good, but they haven't had to like completely ignore what they put down or, or push it back too far. Wastelanders slipped from 2019 to 2020. But outside of that, they've kind of really hit everything they said they would. So this new roadmap kind of introduces seasons, almost like a competitive shooter would, where basically, depending on the objectives that you do in the game for each season, you can unlock... Uh, cosmetics or upgrades or whatever. They've also announced up- updates to new systems such as like legendary perks and perk loadouts. And even in my original review of Fallout 76 in 2018, outside of all the garbage amongst, um how bland the game was to play or how buggy it was, the one shining star that I thought actually was legitimately clever was the perk system. So the perk system, basically, you have a layout of points in your classic Fallout special stats, your strength, your perception, your charisma, etc. And based on how many points you put in each stat, you can have a system of perks that basically increase your character's capabilities in different ways. If you have a high level of strength, you can put in a lot of stats that increase your melee damage or your carrying weight or your, your armor. If you have a lot of stats in intelligence, it's how good you do with energy weapons or power armor or things like that. 
And I, it kind of has this deck building feel that I actually thought was legitimately good. More interesting, I think, than just scaling skill points from zero to 100, like a lot of the Bethesda titles do. So they've introduced basically two ideas in this roadmap. One, the idea of legendary perks. I assume that'll be somehow limited in how, how, to what extent you're able to incorporate them. And the idea of perk loadouts, where if you have like a certain loadout that is good for using, I don't know, shotguns, and then another loadout that's good for being, you know, melee. I think they have a couple of interesting ideas here. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has any takeaway from what they put forth in their 2020 roadmap. I, I kind of leave it to you with Fallout 76. I, I'll. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I, I trust your word on it. I'm not willing to dive in myself and try. Yeah, so with Wastelanders, I do think it was an improvement, like I stated. Though I think like the rate of improvement is kind of snail's paced. Like it's 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 not like it went from terrible to awesome overnight. It's just this little incremental thing. And at this 2020 roadmap, they've also introduced the idea of new storylines involving the Brotherhood of Steel, which is obviously an iconic Fallout, you know, aesthetic in general. Uh, if they can keep on that momentum as slim as it might be, we'll have to see where this game is at at the end of 2020. Uh, but I do think that they've kind of engendered a small amount of trust with the fact that they were able to hit their current roadmaps as effectively as they have been, which I think stands in contrast to, to Anthem, which we'll talk about later, which really I don't think hasn't. If any of these two games I think are in a better place to be worthwhile by the end of the year, I definitely think between the two it's Fallout. I would love that to be the case. I I would love to look back in a year and everyone's like, oh, Fallout 76, that's such a good comeback. Like the game, I, I wouldn't write the game off just yet. From your words. I do think it's interesting that, uh, so the game released on Steam just last month and Fallout 76 is still within like the top 20 of concurrent games being played on Steam. So I think it has found an audience. So it's not like it's on its death throes and it's a wasteland. That's, that's supposed to be ironic. Uh, where no one's <laughs> playing it. So it has found an audience. So hopefully like it has that incentive to try to keep improving upon itself. Which again, I guess I'll just use that. Okay, so I guess just to close that out. So there's a new roadmap that they put forth for the year going through the winter of 2020. It's up on the website if you're interested in seeing it. And then in the same week, we also got an update on Anthem, which is kind of like the similarly maligned online cooperative game and just the comparison between these two kind of speaks for itself so fallout 76 put out its roadmap which kind of in at least some level of detail talked about where they are and where they're going and they've just recently released the update that has been moderately successful where anthem is a lot more wishy-washy in what they put forth so they basically put in a may blog about the status of Anthem, which honestly doesn't say much at all. It's one of the developers talking about the uh, difficulties of the, the situation of working from home, trying to develop a live game, which I do like feel sympathetic for. But then they start talking about uh, kind of getting the ball rolling, starting the conversation, uh, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm almost like sidestepping the story here. They've been doing this like a year ago. 
Right. We got information about a few months ago about the idea of an Anthem next, about a revision for this game. But they haven't, even with this May blog post, they're talking about experimenting, prototyping, getting feedback. But there's no, there's nothing in the way of concrete details. I have to wonder it's if just a shame. Anthem is worth, if, if they've not even, like, well, you'd have to presume they've got, like, something concrete there, but if they're not willing to show that off, how far away is this? Is it even going to be worth it? Like, are people going to want to play so it in a year? So here's something directly from this blog post. It says, the reality is, is that you will see things that look awesome, but end up on the cutting room floor that you might think suck because we feel like we're spending too much time on them. But in the spirit of experimentation, this is all okay. Like they're almost kind of hedging their bets just outright saying like, yeah, we will introduce awesome things that they don't detail. And we might cut awesome things because we have to. It's just... I don't know how anyone can read this, and I'm and I'm a I try to be an optimistic person. I very very rarely will just drag on a game that I don't think is any good, but I look at this post from Anthem from Bioware, and I'm just like, there's almost nothing here to get excited about, which is just a shame. It's it's just a shame that if we're we still this far into the year and we have nothing new on the next revision of Anthem. Like I thought by now, not only would it be out, but we'd like we'd have some impressions on it not to be this far and have no new details besides the fact that it's not coming soon so that kind of makes you wonder how big of a revision this is like is it well that massive to to put some to put to put like some perspective on it they mentioned in the blog post that the current anthem team is about 30 members large which seems really small so it, it almost feels like bioware which i think is like 300 employees or so like that they're a big team. We know they're capable of banking big projects, but it seems like they kind of left the minimum viable on their Anthem live team and everyone else has moved on to who knows what, you know, we can hope Dragon Age 4 or whatever. But it's I just don't see how in one breath you can say we're committed to Anthem and then the next breath say our team members are, we have 30 team members and it's going to be a long process, which is fair. But I just feel like they haven't done a good job, like really setting expectations, like with 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 limited resources, which everyone is under the constraints of having limited resources. How much of an overhaul can we expect for this game? I, I just have a hard time really seeing it. I have two comments. One, the fact that they haven't even like we we don't even know what to expect. It's not just the fact that it's not out yet. It's like we don't even know what they're doing. It's just kind of this you know, pie in the nebulous. sky or vague, nebulous, like we are going to make it better, maybe. And it's okay. How people are like I've seen people kind of compare to this to, oh, they're going to do a Final Fantasy fourteen or Realm Reborn it. And it's like, well, first off, if if that was the goal, they've already messed it up because when when uh, Square Enix was remaking Final Fantasy fourteen for Realm Reborn they were still at the same time like patching and giving like major updates to the original Final Fantasy fourteen. So it's it, it yeah. That actually ties into what my second point was gonna be. Comparing Anthem to something like Final Fantasy fourteen or even Fallout seventy six, both Final Fantasy and Fallout are brands that have followings and have already established themselves. Like these are these are brands and entries into these brands that people I think are going to be more willing to like try again. But Anthem is not a brand yet that people are willing to like 
you know, it has it has maybe the Bioware name behind it that some people just really love Bioware that much. But it's unlike these other brands that, you know, people aren't attached to Anthem like they are to Fallout or Final Fantasy. So I think that the just makes it that much The whole idea of Anthem is already poisoned, I guess. Right. So... <laughs> And I'm reading through some of the snippets of this blog post again, and it's almost worse on revisiting this post from when I first read it. Like one of the things they say is we want to start putting together regular comms out to everyone to talk about changes and our progress. As an aside, they haven't talked about any of the changes yet. This blog is one example. So they're like patting themselves on the back for something that says nothing. It's just like, uh, I don't know. So yeah, so both these games, Fallout and Anthem, I just don't see how you you might think that neither of them has a future, which is fair. But if I had to pick between one of them, it has to be Fallout. And I I would, ha- I would, I would be hard-pressed to see someone try to argue otherwise. I'd be willing to hear it, but I don't think I could be convinced. Yeah, no, I'm not going to argue that one. It almost feels like an obligation of Anthem. It feels like they've gone, well, this is poorly received, and this was supposed to be our biggest thing ever. So we're going to have to, like, at the very least, make it look like we're... Make it look like they're trying, even if they're not really trying. Yeah, well, that that sounds like I I know too much about it. Like, I'm sure they do care, and I'm sure they are trying. But yeah, like I'm sure I'm sure those 30 team members are passionate about what they're doing, and they desperately want it to be good. And I desperately want it to be good. It's just that you kind of have to put your expectations in check when you've only got so many resources in play. If, If, for example, if they if they turned around and said, right, we've got 150 members working on the revision of Anthem. I would that, that I'd be like really impressed. I, I damn I they're committed. Turn that around. Yeah, exactly. And seeing that this blog post, which doesn't really tell us anything besides that they're in development, which we already knew, and that there's 30 members ish of them, it's just like it makes it seem like Bioware don't really care, or EA or whoever you want to say that it doesn't seem like they care. Yep. I wish it was otherwise, but I just haven't seen oh, evidence too. to the contrary. And like I said, I would love for... Well, I said it about Fallout 76, but it is equally true of Anthem. I would love them to both have this like No Man's Sky, Final Fantasy XIV level of resurrection. That'd be awesome. I'd, I'd love for every game that was released to be great, but that isn't always the case. And I'd say maybe that's, just that's a well it. Way, that's, a well, that's a good way to put it. Well stated. And more positive news about something that it feels like so long ago, but it released just a few months ago. But uh, Neo 2, which I think you've played, George, right? At least you have started it. I, <laughs> It's on the, the list of games I need to finish, but I did start it, got about seven hours in, and it is fantastic. But then Animal Crossing came out, and it's just been in the back and for a while. And then the deluge of April RPGs. But anyways, the... Koei Tecmo has announced that the first of three DLC packs uh, will be available also in late July. So something else to look forward to uh, in in the summer months. So this is the Tengu's Disciple, which is a new storyline arc, new character skills armor. It's kind of what you'd expect from a DLC for this style of game. Which, I don't know, I guess I don't want to take it for granted because we've seen kind of DLC, like for instance, for Code Vein, which kind of was like the in a lot of ways, the bare minimum. It was like boss fights that were recolored or repurposed, and that was it. I do want to say I never, I didn't play those. I know the impression for those were really poor. But Neo 2, I think, has was a strong enough foundation when it released in March that there's lots of reasons to look forward to like what their continuing support of the game will look like. 
And there's also, they announced, um, I believe, like uh, a photo mode and other things for Neo 2 to be, to be coming. Do I have that correct? Yep, yeah. they are doing a photo mode, which, you know, people love photo modes. I love photo mode. I'm just glad that I had that correct and Adam didn't have another reason to, to say, no, actually, you're <laughs> wrong. This is what it was. But anyway, so Neo <laughs> 2 was a game that actually, uh, when I was looking for games to play before Xenoblade, I was actually thinking, like, you know what? I should try Xeno, uh, sorry, Neo 2. Uh, but I forgot that it wasn't on PC yet. I have a PS4 and I should probably just get it there, but I'm worried that like as soon as I purchase it on PS4, they'll announce a PC version. Um, but this is definitely on my list and I want to actually experience it so that I can like talk about it with that, you know, backing, like when it comes to like game of the year or whatever. Because by all respects, it seems like it's a well-made, really great game. I just want to experience it for myself. Yeah, I, so I, would, the, uh, I need to give I, it its due time. But yeah, so the uh, the Tengu's Disciple coming out July 30th seems kind of like the typical sort of slate of additions and features to this sort of, I hate to say it, Souls-like game. It'll be interesting to see, like, I remember when Neo 2 first came out in March, so many people were sharing, like, their custom characters, and it has, like, a wonderful art style and, like, a really cool aesthetic. Uh, I wonder if I'll see that bubble back up again as people revisit to... Uh, to play the DLC and what people think about it. If the DLC ends up having like this really strong reception, and I don't know, maybe maybe we'll have someone here like review it and give like an actual score to it because we've done that before with like the Dark Souls DLCs. Um, if it's got a really strong reception, that might just be what pushes me over the edge to, to just try it out. All right, the last piece of news for this week is just a short little footnote. Um, Story of Seasons, Friends of Mineral Town, We've talked about this on the podcast previously. It had its uh, European release date announced for mid-July. We talked about how the uh, localized version was going to introduce like same-sex marriages. Uh, but we finally got a um, North American release date from XSEED. Uh, it'll be releasing on July 14th in North America. I think that's kind of like about when we expected it to come out. But obviously, we've always got this dual publishing relationship between XSEED and Marvelous for... North America and uh, European releases. So we kind of have to treat those two like news sources separately sometimes. And here it is. This is just kind of like the last piece of the puzzle falling in place for Story of Seasons. I'm, I'm just going to mention anyone... that whenever we share this, like these sort of news on our social feeds, I'm really surprised. Like people are really excited for this. Um, I guess people just love the aesthetic and it's kind of a, a charming, cute game, uh, farming sort of games, you know, obviously have become pretty popular with Stardew Valley being, you know, the modern popular one. But uh, this is, I think a lot of people also have a lot of nostalgia for this because it is a remake of a popular Game Boy Advance game. So uh, I think it's just several elements that are coming into play here. And I think people are excited for this one. Is anyone in this podcast room got like personal experience with Harvest Moon? Or no, no it was always one of those. Yeah. Um, like the one Harvest Moon game I put a decent amount of time into was Friends of Mineral Town. <laughs> oh, neat. So yeah, I guess uh, just for anyone who doesn't quite know, Story of Seasons is the uh, modern day rendition of Harvest Moon, but they just can't use the name because the publishing is now under Exceed and Marvelous and not under Natsume. So this is a Harvest Moon game in essence. But yeah, like Adam said, I'm always surprised whenever we share stuff from this series or from like Rune Factory, there's a huge audience for these sorts of games. And 
I don't know. I, it's not something that I think I would have the affinity for, but I just like I'm vicariously excited when I see so many people like super hyped for this sort of yeah. thing. It's hard not to just feel <laughs> feel alongside for the ride. Yeah, like I tried out Stardew Valley, and it's just personally not a game for me. Like my take on it is, I feel like it just takes forever to do anything. But some people just really get lost in those games, and I think that's really cool um, that people do love these sorts of games, even if it's just not quite the type of thing I'm looking for personally. But yeah, we had Rune Factory earlier this year, and this is out this summer, so um, lots to go around. Vibes on the way somewhere. But I think we also see that similar sort of style with people that get super creative with um, like Animal Crossing. It's not quite the same style of game, but it has a little bit of the same sort of like flow to it. So the fact that people have really stuck so strongly to that game also, I think, is within the same ballpark of you know that sort of casual, laid back, you know sort of experience that doesn't really push you to like experience some sort of like strong narrative or you know super like deep hard difficult thing just be this more like relaxing sort of pleasant experience that still has that level of interactivity that is the reason why we play video games in the first place and the final piece of news for this week really isn't an rpg but we kind of wanted to talk about it just because there's a little bit of a weird context to it that uh on wednesday i believe the same day that Paper Mario was shown, if I, unless someone corrects me. Paper Mario uh, came out, that, or it was shown on Thursday. Oh, I might have stated that wrong so correctly. Right. So all the days of the week just sort of blend together this time of uh, in this in this environment, as you understand. But we got a state of play, a Sony uh, presentation for Ghost of Tsushima, which is uh, Sucker Punch's new samurai-styled game. So we've talked about. Neo, which has got that similar aesthetic. We've talked about Sekiro in the past, which is from software's version of that style of game. And now we've got uh, Ghost of Tsushima, which the gameplay actually, like, I'm not going to say like, all three of those games are the same because they're definitely not. They have, they have their own flavor and their own gameplay style. A lot of people have been comparing what they saw to the gameplay presentation on Thursday, on Wednesday, uh, whenever it was this week, as like Assassin's Creed-like which I thought was kind of interesting, but I do see it when I watch it, how it plays. Um, yeah, I get vibes like that, like of the more recent Assassin's Creeds. Uh, only some things, though. Like, it seems so, a lot more focused on... Um... Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> we keep doing that. Um, I don't know, it just seems less like... This doesn't seem like an RPG with the combat, but the stealth elements are very Assassin's Creed. Like, it looks like press That's... this button to crowd moving that way for a while if that makes sense yeah so, so obviously genres don't have like well-defined borders they never do especially rpgs but i remember the reason why i just think this game is interesting to talk about is that in early 2019 when sekiro released like activision who had published the game kind of very clearly stated this is not like dark souls this is an action game so we as a site just kind of had to decide well, let's not cover it we we kind of want to like no one has a good idea what an rpg is not really uh so we just kind of figured that's just on the outside looking in. That's on the fringe. But I feel like we all kind of agree that we could have covered it if we want to. I mean, we cover Zelda games and other things that are equally less RPG-like. So then we have this game, Ghost of Tsushima, where it's like, we could cover this. We could consider this RPG enough. And certainly some people would disagree with that. But some people disagree with all of that. Some people think JRPGs aren't RPGs. You know, everyone has their own opinion and no one's going to be swayed. That's why it's almost pointless to even like discuss yeah. what the rules are. That's, that's the weird part about us being a genre site, especially when games aren't out yet. 
is that we kind of just have to like make these sorts of judgments when we look at this game. Like, is it an RPG or not? They're not calling it one, but sometimes you can't even trust what publishers say. Like, I know some people argue that Horizon Zero Dawn really is barely an RPG, and I kind of understand that, even though they called it one. And they called it one pre-release, so we covered it pre-release, but then kind of by the time it came out and we actually, and like we had Natalie review it and experienced it, it's like, you know what, this is actually kind of just, just RPG light. And then like Sekiro, whether or not that is one, you know, there's also Astral Chain, which wasn't really billed as an RPG, but when they showed more and more about it, we saw things like character builds and quests and things like that to the point we just decided kind of at the last minute, we can cover this. And that's just kind of the weird position we're in as, an, as a genre site is we kind of have to decide even before we know what the game is, whether or not we want to cover it. Um, and unlike like maybe like a Nintendo site, you just cover anything that's on Nintendo and it's done. But here we kind of have to make those judgments. It's a little bit weird. And a lot of the times... No. I feel like it's worth noting that on our uh, staff Discord, the uh, subtitle is Everything is an RPG These Days. We had people yeah, we... actually... When God of War released, the remake, we had actually some people ask, like, where's your God of War review? And it's like, yeah, you can maybe call that an RPG. It's got, like, skill trees. Um, eh, like, you know, it's, it's just weird. Yeah, we're in that, we're we in that boat where... Yeah, we're in that boat where if we don't cover a game, we'll have a population of people say, where's your review for this? Or if we do cover a game, it's like, most recently, someone I saw commented on Josh's Sacro Wars review, basically saying, like, why did you cover this? It's like, you can't really win. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of, and, and a lot of our decisions is, are admittedly RPG arbitrary. And it's less so, yeah, it's just, it's hard, it's hard to make these judgments. If you ask 10 different people to list the five components that are required for an RPG, you're going to end up with like a list of 40 things. Like, there is no guideline that we all can, you know, bow to. There just isn't. But anyways, to get back on topic, Ghost of Tsushima is a very interesting game that I feel, or I don't want to say is, seems to be a very interesting game that I feel like fans of RPGs have a lot of reasons to look forward to it. And I know George is one of those people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That trailer, re- well, that gameplay showcase really knocked my socks off. Not the combat stuff, which I know is what most people are saying doesn't look amazing like i'm sure there's quite a lot of depth to it really but it it looked quite simple there but the exploration like because the game is so beautiful and like takes place in this world that looks like it's going to be fully realized like i actually want to explore that world and that gave me massive breath of the wild vibes which is why i want to cover it um just put my my hat in there yes i do want to talk about this later on (laughs) Um, but it just looks so fat like fascinating to explore and and that's one of my favorite things in a game. It happens so rarely nowadays when I actually sit down, play a game to completion and then go, oh, I want to go back and explore that world. I haven't had that in such a long time, but I'm already sort of getting that here. Yeah, and then so I have two further comments on what we saw here. It's interesting to contrast Sony saying, here is a gameplay showcase for Ghost of Tsushima. And they literally legitimately show like a bunch of raw gameplay and people kind of... A lot of people were excited about it, but there was a population of people that were lukewarm about it compared to what Xbox showed where they used the word gameplay and then shied away from it in their actual presentation. That was so just, confusing. Just, yeah, like I don't want to say one's inherently better than the other, but it's just one One was a definitely a more clearer priority of purpose than the other in terms of here's what we will do and then actually follow through on that. But then also the fact that some people have said like, well, this gameplay looks like Assassin's Creed or whatever. I've seen this stuff before, but we just talked about earlier in the podcast where it's like not every game has to 
bring something absolutely unseen and new to the table. Sometimes a game like Bug Fables, sorry to bring it up again, can just do something that is well-worn and well-established, but then just do it effectively and do it well. And that's enough. And that's more than enough. Like, I'm not, obviously the jury's still out on whether Ghost of Tsushima accomplishes that. But just because it looks familiar, I don't think should be an immediate condemnation to it. I agree. I'd much rather it did everything that it wanted to do really well, but it didn't have like this massive groundbreaking thing. Like I feel I've I haven't seen anything so far that makes me go, oh wow, only Ghost of Tsushima has that. But I, I still want to play it because it looks like it does everything to a to a good standard. Right. And sometimes that those sorts of games end up being way better than you think they'll be. And well hopefully that's the same is true for uh for ghosts. So that covers everything that I had on the slate to talk about on this podcast. I don't know if anyone has any like further ideas about looking forward to what's coming out in May, June, or July, or any other closing thoughts. Well, I I thought the summer was kind of dry. Uh, I'm not really big into the PlayStation games, so like uh, Last of Us and uh, Ghost of Tsushima. But now we got a Paper Mario in there, and even though I'm kind of haven't been burned by re- by recent games, like hey, I had something to play this summer that I will see if it's any good for me like like been playing final fantasy 14 so much for like the last couple of months i don't quite know what i'm gonna be playing like uh after i'm like fully caught up uh i guess i'll probably go back to xenoblade chronicles uh cross for a uh, definitive edition comes out and there's a another mystery rpg that i'm reviewing for us right now that can't really well the embargo's up so i'm not sure if i can uh say what game it is though uh coincidentally um bad now i won't i won't embargoes are weird (laughs) sometimes i don't mind if you say like yeah we're playing this game i just can't talk about it or you can't actually say what you're playing at all so yeah yeah like if it had a separate preview embargo that would be something else but yeah Oh, sorry. I was going to say that covers us for this edition of the uh, TetraCast. So busy time of year, and we're playing all sorts of games, MMOs, and lots of stuff coming in the future. And we're at at a period of time with this weird summer of E3 that who knows what will be announced between now and next week that we'll look forward to like really soon. Like we look at the back half of the year and it might seem light, but we're also just getting into the time of the year where... Like we didn't, we didn't know about Tony Hawk or Paper Mario before coming into today. So who knows what what'll be the equivalent going into next week or the week after? So we have reviews for uh, Bug Fables and as well as another indie game. Once I want to get the title right, uh, we have an indie game, Signs of the Sojourner, uh, that Danny Maddox reviewed for us, which is another indie game that she thought really highly of. Um, I don't know much about it, so I wasn't really able to talk about it in the main cast. But we do have a review for that on the website. You can always find us at rpgsite.net for all the news and previews and reviews that we've been doing. Uh, we're very active on Twitter at rpgsite. Um, you can also find our Discord link from the homepage where people are talking about all sorts of uh, games coming out, um, including stuff from last year like Fire Emblem Three Houses, but also Soccer Wars and Final Fantasy and you know everything else that's on our minds. Uh, you can find us on YouTube and Facebook at rpgsite.net. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Zio Masicot, Z-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. George, where can they find you? So on all social medias, follow me on Instagram, please. It is at G-E-P-U-G-G, G-Pug. Adam, where can they find you? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James. 
T-H-E-G-S-V-W-E-E-T. Thanks again so much for listening, and we will see you likely next week. Talk to you then. Yes, next week. (laughs) Next week. Seemingly.